Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. It's a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Chris Bilton, who is one of the uh, co-authors of Creativities, the what, how, where, who, and why of the creative process. Uh, so welcome to the podcast. Hi, nice to be here. Um, to start us off, um, I mean, th- this is a, a great book, both in terms of its uh, kind of academic um, analysis, but also in terms of its, its practical um, insights in, into how to be creative and, and how the creative process works. And I'm interested in, in how you got kind of inspired uh, to, to write the book and, and, and what the sort of process of um, working together with the other co-authors was. Well, Steve and I had written a book together and we'd also edited a book together. And that was back in as far back as 2014. I had the idea of doing something about um, multiple creativities. You know, there isn't just one type of creativity. There's lots of ways to be creative. And we were kind of kicking that around in different formats for a while. Um, we originally, it was going to be pathways to creativity. We had a, this idea of a museum with different exhibits of different sorts of creativity in it. And and it was sort of going back and forth. We switched publishers. Um, we did some workshops. And through one of those workshops, we met our third co-author, DT, and she sort of introduced a lot of uh, kind of global perspectives. And she's fairly different. Me and Steve are kind of old white blokes. And she's, a, you know, a very experienced senior um, Afro-American woman. Um, and so she we thought it would be really good to have her, especially in a book, which is about multiple creatives, have a different perspective. And then... Then during lockdown, we still hadn't written this book and we sort of thought, actually, let's get on with it. So in the end, Steve and I, during lockdown, he's in New Zealand, I'm in the UK, just kind of wrote it together, the bulk of it, with with DT acting more like an editor, um, bouncing ideas back and forth during lockdown. And um, and yeah, I think the, the, the idea of it was to... Um, get away from the kind of idea of creativity being this magical um, holy grail that you find that actually we, we've all got some form of creativity. The challenging part is how you 
connect that together with other people's creativities, plural. And and then and then the recipe thing kind of um, kicked in from there. Yeah, I mean, that, it, it's not in the title, but running right the way through the book is this idea, this kind of metaphor of it being a cookbook and there being kind of recipes for creativity. And, and I think, as, as you've mentioned, it helps to sort of decenter this idea of you've got to be a genius or you'll never be creative. And, and I'm partially kind of interested in where you kind of got the metaphor from, you, you know, where, where that came from, and then how it, it sort of manifests in terms of each chapter having particular examples, particular recipes for creativity. Yeah, it, it, I mean, we were actually thinking of calling it Creativity Cookbook and then or Creative Cookbook, and then we realised that was going to really confuse people and they were going to be saying, well, where's the recipe? You know, I thought it was going to be meringues and banana cake. And um, so it, the metaphor was... A, I started from that cliche of well, of course there isn't a there isn't a single recipe for this, and then we started thinking about how recipe books actually work. That people use recipes as a kind of inspiration for doing for doing things in their own way. Most people don't follow recipes; they look at them and then change them and customize them and so on. And that seemed quite a good metaphor for what we wanted readers to do. So we kind of we set that up as a kind of. Um, a way of of um, organizing the book, and then what happened during the writing of the book? We we shifted away to this um, what, how, where, who, why framework instead. So what you have, possibly slightly confusingly, is you have a residue of cooking metaphors. You know, originally the chapters were going to be called things like the kitchen, the dining room, the takeout, the market. Um, and quite a lot of those metaphors are still in there, like mixing things up and um, going to the market to buy ingredients. Um, but I think, you know, I think Steve and I probably both have a tendency to use metaphors a bit too much and get a bit carried away. And so I think it was partly DT and the edit and the publishers were sort of reining us back in a little bit and saying, well, let's not get too carried away. But the other thing with the recipes was that we both, Steve and I, felt that the bits we really like in books are the short little case studies. So we thought, well, let's try and build a book really around um, a bunch of a bunch of what we're calling recipes, but are really kind of mini cases. Keep the theoretical framing relatively light. So there is theory there, but we don't kind of push it too much um, in order to keep the book fairly accessible. And then a bit like a recipe book, um, you could kind of start it wherever you wanted. You know, you could dip into the the, the where or the, the why rather than starting at the beginning with the what, if that's the way that you want to, to read it. Um, and famously, you know, the, the why chapter introduced this idea of purpose, which is intrinsic to creative processes. And it's also intrinsic to um, business. If you read people like Simon Sinek, who... Who wrote the the book Start with Why, which you know is often the, a, a kind of a thing that you're told when you're setting up an entrepreneurial venture. You know, decide your purpose. Why are you doing this first before you start worrying about what your product is? Think about your values, your you know your purpose. Um, and we put that at the end because we actually very often you don't really know why you're doing things until you've done them. Um, but yeah, the, the the kind of the what, how, who, where, why took over from the the recipe the cookbook framework a little bit but the the cookbook is still in there because i don't know i think we quite liked it and the other thing is that you know this as i mentioned before this book was written during lockdown 
and we were spending a lot of time at home watching TV. So a lot of the recipes are inspired by stuff we were consuming, whether that's food or Netflix series. And and the recipe idea again was, you know, that's it's something that we were kicking around between us and something we were finding sort of inspiring for ourselves to, to frame the book. That's, that's really interesting, actually. And I, I was particularly taken by that idea of, you know, you don't have to read it in a linear fashion. Actually, you know, you can dip in and out of the individual chapters and actually of the individual uh, case study recipes as well. Um, maybe, maybe we will. I mean, you mentioned the kind of the why at the end, uh, but maybe we'll take them sort of slightly in order. And um, you mentioned the kind of theory is woven sort of lightly throughout the book as well. So so maybe we'll you know pick up on, on theory as and when it's it's relevant. But at the risk of kind of saying what is the what what is the how what what is the where I, I wonder actually to, to do that could could we make it real with a couple of the case studies so um the book you you mentioned you know is, is a global book um and it's not uh, just english or indeed you know kind of western european um or, or american uh, examples and i wonder could you tease out the what with a couple of of examples you know maybe we've got Royal Shakespeare Company and the Young Vic, which are obviously in Britain, but actually you've got, you know, Giacali, um and, and Jagud. I'm not sure if I pronounced this correctly, Nairobi and Mumbai. You've got examples of bikes in Beijing. Um, yeah, you, you know, there's examples from uh, Louisville in the States. So um, could you give a, a, a sort of a flavour of a couple of examples of what the what is? Yeah, sure. Well, the what, I mean, the starting point for the book is that we can all be creative in our own way. So then it's, well, where do we start? Well, we start with our ingredients. We start with um, where do ideas come from? And there, there's a kind of a, f- a few things around that. Firstly, uh, looking at diversity of thought and thinking, well, where do you get different ideas from? How do you expose yourself to different ideas? So, yeah, it's very important that that the recipes were global in scope and that we, we didn't sort of pick from the same basket that we tried to think about. Um, you know, not not always the usual suspects. I mean, we do have people like um, Steve Jobs in the book, you know, but we try to kind of be a bit more counterintuitive in the examples we were using. And and we look in the first chapter at ideas of um, diversity and uh, scarcity and abundance. And um, And the argument really is that excess can be a source of creativity if it's used in the right way um and we often think of excess as you know there's there's too we have too much stuff we've reached we've reached peak stuff we need to move away from it but actually um the example from the rsc was um of this project they did called such tweet sorrow which a friend of mine was involved in the in the writing of and by all accounts, you know, according to the theatre critics, it was a failure. You know, people didn't really like it. And they said, well, this isn't Shakespeare. But the, to, just to explain what the project was, they they, they did, basically, they did um, Romeo and Juliet on Twitter and called it Such Tweet Sorrow. And they brought in all of these um, subplots from um, different things happening in off stage, as it were, and which is somewhat true to Shakespeare's play that, you know, lots of stuff happens off stage, letters come in and get lost and things are happening off, off screen. And, and the, the, the excess really was the, the sort of the abundance was Twitter, which at the time was this new um, 
form that nobody really quite understood and people were saying, well, Twitter's never really going to take off. This is a, a, a just a flash in the pan. And, and nobody's really looking at the creative possibilities of it. And what happened with Twitter is that people became, as you could imagine, and it makes sense now, people became obsessed and started following characters and setting up little hashtags and and communities that were tracking all the things that were happening um, offstage, different characters. And the challenge really for the writers was trying to almost rein it in and keep some kind of control on it. But as a creative experience, what it did was, was allowed the actors, um, the audience or users... Um, almost free reign to do an awful lot of things that were not really in Shakespeare. Um, and through that, develop this incredibly rich stew of, of lots of different elements. And it was an example, really, of where we often think of excess and abundance. You know, it's confusing, there's no clarity. But actually, that was the, that was the joy of it. That's the joy of Twitter, you could argue, as well, that people were able to just kind of dip in and out and find lots of different ways of understanding the stories. And then the other extreme from that was the idea of scarcity that, and we use as the example there, um, Duakali, which is the Kenyan version, which actually a friend of DT's, Vincent, introduced us to this idea of um, Duakali, which is roughly speaking a kind of DIY hacking, making things, making the best of things. And very similar to the idea of Jugad, which is an Indian word, which pretty much means hack. And what Jugard and Jukali do is they they're they're kind of um, in poorer developing countries, people who don't have the resources, who don't are not doing kind of expensive R and D to develop new products. They're making do with old products and using them to solve the problem at hand, rather than trying to create a, a prototype for something which may be useful in the future. And it was a very pragmatic idea of creativity, which has become quite influential in the rich West as well. So you've got, you know, companies now embracing things like frugal innovation. Um, I mean, Nestor did a whole thing about frugal innovation in the UK, actually. Um, and during lockdown, again, there was a story that caught caught my eye of a kid in um, Kenya who made a, a, a water pump out of bits of wood that his dad had left lying around um, to provide clean drinking water in the village. And it was just a, it was a brilliant little story. It was a little BBC um, a short story on their website. And so we kind of built the, the, the recipe out of that. And all, all of the recipes sort of work like that, that we take an event or an incident or a story or a source, and then we just kind of riff on it and try to draw that out and connect it back into some of the theories that we were trying to smuggle into the book. I mean, for the how you do this to really good effect with a very controversial and I guess a kind of um, a, a sort of a, a downside or, or a, a warning about both the excesses of, of, of kind of creative uh, leadership and creative excess but but also it's good to see um i think one of these more controversial examples in there so this is the um example of harvey weinstein and um i guess the kind of the me too movement that that follows and i wonder if you could say how that sort of illustrates the uh, the how of creativity yeah well the how of creativity is you know once you've got your ingredients assembled you've got your team assembled you've got your people the how is is really well how do you make it work how do you drive that forward so the chapter of is really about leadership. How do you lead creativity? And we have these 
uh, I mean, all the way through the book, there is this kind of idea of um, by association, opposition, bridging between differences. So, you know, between excess and frugality, between um, between rationality and spontaneity. And in this chapter, it's it's the idea of the kind of very rational leader who has a very clear sense of direction and we and, and is is really kind of sifting the ingredients, measuring things, aligning things, and we use some examples of that from things like football teams. We t- we talk about Marco Bielsa actually, which is always the kiss of death whenever we mention any football <laughs> team they, they implode, and he got sacked while the book was in the proofing stage. But there you go, um, and and then the other side alongside that. Um, that kind of sifting is the more energetic mixing where you just want to, you want to get energy and power and drive behind it. And, and the example we used there was um, the show South Park where everything is done incredibly quickly and they, they turn these shows around within a week, which is incredible when you compare, compare that to shows like the Simpsons, which, you know, take weeks and months to produce. Anyway, the, the, the Weinstein example was, was, as you say, an example of excess. What happens when you take these bisociative opposites and you push towards one extreme? And in, in Weinstein's case, the extreme was towards an extreme version of that energetic mixing and drive and energy. And he was a sort of force of nature. Meryl Streep famously and possibly regrettably um, referred to him as God in one of her Oscar acceptance speeches. You know, he, And he was loved and he was fated by Hollywood. But of course, what that disguised was that when you have that much drive and energy, it does a number of has a number of negative consequences. One of which is that you squeeze the energy out of everybody else, and you become this kind of uh, you know dominant personality who squashes the initiative and the creativity out of the people around you, whilst you know drawing all the focus onto yourself. Um, and, you know, one of the things that came out of Me Too was, well, look at all these amazing um, women, uh, directors, writers, actresses, whose creativity has just been blanked and, and squeezed out by by men like Weinstein. And, and you know, obviously he wasn't, we, we demonise him as an individual, but it was a it was more of a culture than an individual. Um, and the other, the other kind of thing that happens with um, somebody like, Weinstein is that they they become um, they become attributed as with the Meryl Streep calling him God with this as with this sort of genius um, idea that they are indispensable and that they are the only person that can make this happen, which you know is obviously the antithesis to the argument we're trying to present in the book, um, but also leads to um, the kind of the whole lack of accountability you know that if if creativity is simply a matter of magical genius and you have a magician then you don't want to touch the magician you let them do their thing regardless of what it costs regardless of the human cost and you get versions of that all the way through the creative sector all the way through business you know people who are attributed with this almost divine power and therefore getting a free pass to to do anything they want to get away with everything, and and you know, with 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 Weinstein, that was that was the kind of eventually that that came out in the wash. Um, but that there's still that culture of genius in in the film industry, especially partly because people still have the idea that 
the film industry is so unpredictable and so uncertain that the only people who get it right are these kind of are these one-off maverick geniuses. Actually, the film industry is quite a lot more rational than that, and they do you know they use data analytics and Netflix, if nothing else, have shown us that 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 way of working is is just as good at, at divining future hits as as the kind of genius in the top floor. So yeah, that was that's Weinstein, and he he was you know it's good in I think in a book like this to to give some negative examples rather than saying well here's a great recipe here's an inspiring thing to do we wanted to have a few which were well here's something that really didn't work and you know <laughs> don't do this yeah it, it, exactly that actually and you know it sort of pierces some of the overly sort of celebratory discourses around uh, creativity that we we see in in some of the kind of you know, government policy, but but also in bits of management um, textbooks as well. And, and I suppose actually that kind of idea about bringing management theory in is, is what you do in, in the where chapter. And, and I don't want to sort of drill down too much and readers can explore it for themselves. But I'm interested um, if you could give a sort of a, a flavour and overview of what's going on with the where chapter, because you've got, I guess, quite a diverse range of organisations and individuals and um, quite a strong engagement with uh, kind of organizational form and organizational theory and and I'm interested to know kind of what you were trying to do with the where chapter uh, as much as what's actually going on with it yeah well I think that the where chapter was um you know if the previous chapter was about leadership this is really about organization and organizational structures and systems as you say and we I think the again in the spirit of the that there's no one clear recipe the the framework is quite loose and really it says well you know you've got big organizations you've got small organizations you've got you've got kind of um, very controlling bureaucratic organizations you've got very free and individualistic organizations let's look at how these different things work and what we I think tried to show was that the, the distinctions are not as clear cut as you might think, and and we you know we include examples of overlapping forms that kind of cross that hybridize between different ways of organizing. But you know you've got a you've got what we call an M type organization like Toyota, which is this you know classic corporate controlling structure, but actually within that allows a certain level of freedom because you're able to leverage different capabilities within a big company like that to do quite innovative things and then we go from that into um, a company like Walt Disney which is where it was again a kind of corporate organization but that the, there was a Disney's approach Walt's approach was to was to kind of delegate and outsource and to get other people to have the ideas and and that you know that bleeds into the next chapter the the who chapter as well but it's the the idea that organizations can be even though they are structured in superficially similar ways can produce very different outcomes and then we jump to the sort of more individualistic organizations from factory records and um and we included the tiger king this was i blame steve for this as a sort of analogy between um the tiger king and steve jobs um both um maverick heroic creative leaders who um who kind of inspire awe and fear in those around them and are a, a, a bit like weinstein are allowed to do things in their own way uh, and perhaps to the detriment of those around them but in the case of jobs and and 
uh, and in particular, you know, have have obviously been able to empower and enable. And that's one of the weird paradoxes of Steve Jobs, that he's notoriously a, was a bully and, you know, a dominant personality, but at the same time seemed to be able to get people at Apple and indeed Apple users to feel like they were creative too and empower them and enable them in some way, which is, you know, I mean, we're, we're kind of interested in these sort of paradoxes all through the book because creativity is, as you know, is, is a paradoxical thing. I mean, what, one of the examples from the who chapter is, it's quite nice. Uh, illustration of that and, and I was really taken with the discussion of, of tower records in Japan you know on, on the one hand you've got effectively the kind of collapse of, of this business in, in the United States and you know it's almost kind of obsolescence and yet in Japan it's you know a kind of a triumph and is um, somewhat of a sort of like you know iconic cultural destination as much as it is a thriving business so, so how does that illustrate the kind of uh, the shift away from you know single creative geniuses but also still keeps who as as important with with tower it's tower records in japan i mean i mean the first thing to say about tower records in japan in a way is that it was a there was a lot of circumstantial things that made it work which is partly to do with japanese culture and i, I don't know whether you've been to japan i i haven't but but it's I've been to Tower Records in Have Japan. Oh, wow. and that's why I mentioned it as a as a cultural destination. Right. Well, that, that's on it's on my it's on my visit list along with Third Man Records, which is another one that we refer to. Who've now just opened a branch in London, actually, of Third Man. But but um, yeah, with Tower Records, it it was the the story of the Who was that it was it we we start with the the. Um, the Mark Twain um, thing about getting other somebody else to to paint your fence, getting other people to do the work, and what what Tower Records did was it it enabled the the workforce and the fans, the users, to get very involved in in the business. Um, and so, whilst the rest, as you say, while whilst whilst Tower Records went down the toilet. Um, Tower Records Japan was bought out and operated independently. And was able to engage their users through in-store events, through um, magazines, through uh, live, all the kind of live stuff, all the collectible vinyl stuff, all the stuff that naturally now the music industry is, you know, is, is being, you know, is really trying to take advantage of. And, and so in many ways, they were sort of ahead of their time in what they were doing. But the Who chapter is 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 really about the shift away from, the the idea of one person or one group of people being in control to to kind of conceding power outwards and so so a lot of the chapter is describing decisions by by organisations by um, whole or either people who run an organisation or people who hold um, rights over creative products to to allow people their users or or other or other people outside the organization to play around with what they've got and that's a big risk and it's a sort of concession of control that can backfire but in the case of tower records japan it allows them to to actually produce something yeah really um unique and um and a, a thing that that people from the uk like you will go and visit as as a sort of as something that is that it, that could be a, a template for for the music industry worldwide and you know you do wonder sometimes you know what would happen if you were um if, if you were still standing as a as a record store in in 
the UK or in um, or in the US now because they all went pretty much. Um, I mean, even you know HMV, I suppose staggered on a little while, but they they kind of merged and they they lost their focus on music and they did that thing of diversifying into other forms rather than diversifying into other people, which is what Tower Records Japan did. The final chapter, I guess, kind of extends that what do we do question. Um, so you talk about why in, in, in sort of various different ways, but but one of the things that happens in, I guess, the kind of second half of the final chapter is that you, you talk about the existential kind of crisis moment for organisations or, or for projects when, when they get to a point where they're kind of asking, well, why are we doing this? Why are we still doing this? What is this for? Um, and actually talking about, you know, things like Tower's success and other record companies failures is, is a good illustration of that and i wonder if if you could sort of as, as we wrap up think through that existential question of, of why for me because i suppose a lot of discourse in in this space is how do we get something started there's very little that tends to grapple with the what happens when it's successful where do we go next yeah i, I agree with you and i think that the you know the start with the why i was actually on a train last night and by weird serendipity somebody was sitting opposite me reading start with why and it you know it's an incredibly influential idea in business that you start with purpose and it's as you say it's all about the startups never about well what happens when you you get pissed off and you get bored and you know we use the example of the beatles you know who who you know they change and you think well you know they've had their time and they've they don't want to carry on doing what they're doing they they don't want to go and do live tours anymore and and I think that that's often presented as a kind of, you know, uh, you know it's, it's a failure, it's a dropout. But it's a much more interesting time to ask the question why is, is the sort of, well, what next? What are we doing? What's the point of all this? Why have, I, why have I wasted my time or our time doing this thing that I thought was really important and now I, now I can't really be asked with anymore? And that, that kind of um, self-questioning, I think, was what we wanted to get to in that chapter and looking at what happens when when the business moves on and leaves you behind or when you move on and leave the business behind. Those are the kind of the two pathways that we that we track, really, in the chapter. And, you know, there's the example of Ben and Jerry's, which, you know, at least in, the, um, in our telling of the story, is that these guys didn't really know what they were doing. You know, they were just... They were just mucking about, and they were they were college dropouts. They were planning to. They weren't even planning to make ice cream. They were planning to. I can't even remember what it was now. Um, cakes or I don't know, whatever it was, and they and they couldn't they couldn't afford the equipment, and the ice cream equipment was going cheap. So oh, we'll buy that. The, the whole business was a series of accidents, but through the process of of running the business. Um, I think it was Ben got bored and said he was fed up and somebody said, well, why don't you try and make it into something that you care about and introduce some of your values? So he said, oh, that's a good idea. So then they had this sort of social mission, um, which, you know, Ben and Jerry's has been associated with. And it, you know, it was things like using um, ex-offenders to, or a company that sourced chocolate brown is made by ex-offenders um, contributing to social causes, social justice, all of these things. Now, in, a, in one version of the story, you've got Ben and Jerry's idealistic um, entrepreneur taken over by evil corporation Unilever, sellout, failure. Actually, the social mission was not the thing, was not the why of the business. It wasn't why they started. They didn't have a why. They stumbled upon it. And, and strangely, when Unilever took over, they actually 
maintained that social mission as part of a Unilever brand. And Ben and Jerry were kind of tolerated on the board as, as to carry on. So it was an interesting deviate, diversion, what's the not diversion, um, a parting of the ways between the individual personal why and the business productional why. And, and it being quite a sort of benign handover, really, um, from one from one time kind of why to another. But then some of the others are more are more tragic tales, really, of people who've um, held on too long or have been where the productional why, the logic of the business has, has sort of forced them to suppress their own personality. And, you know, we include the sort of story of Maradona in, in that as, a, as a, an example of what happens when when the 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 why the question of why being asked pe- by people around maradona doesn't really allow him to express himself and um and he and he becomes kind of trapped in this this myth of of maradona and he can no longer be diego anymore um and then yeah i mean i think uh there's i mean one of the other stories of the why is the um papi jang who's this um I guess you probably these days you'd call her an online influencer, but you know back in the day she was she was quite an outlier in doing what she did. And she made these kind of funny videos. She was an ex actress. Um, she was quite different from the other sorts of people in China who were doing this kind of thing. In that she was quite a bit older. Um, she, according to her at least, she wasn't conventionally pretty. She was just an ordinary girl next door type. I mean, that's I think I think that was quite clever on her part to play with that. But what became clear with her is that she was not really taking it very seriously. She got given the big sponsorship deals and she would just say, oh, I don't I don't need the money, give it to somebody else. And when I talked to some of my Chinese students about Papi Jiang, they said, well, you know, she's a, basically, you know, she was a failure, really. She failed to kind of take advantage of all the e-commerce opportunities around her brand. But from her point of view, she was just doing what she wanted to do. So compared to, again, looking at this, this parting of the ways between the personal and the productional why, in in her case, it was all about self-expression, self-fulfillment. And the business side of it, she didn't really care that much about. She was, she happened to be very good at it. She made a, built a big brand, but then pretty much let it let it wither away because that's what that's what she cared about. So I think these sort of these sort of mid-career, you know, we're all we're at that time of life, you know, mid-career crises where you think, well, what why am I doing this? What's the point of this? I think those are very can be very fruitful and can allow you and allow you know allow you to to part to separate out from what you were doing before and do something different and and that's again in the spirit of the book is allowing people to to do different things and reinvent themselves. What does that mean in terms of your own work? I mean, it's always a bit kind of cruel when an author's finished a book and you know as, as you mentioned the kind of circumstances of writing it on, under the lockdowns of, of 2020 and, and, and you know, the three of you working together to then be like, so what are you doing next? But, but it, it strikes me that actually that final chapter has some interesting implications actually for, for your own work in terms of uh, moving forward with research on creativity or actually doing something completely different in, in terms of finding a new challenge. Well, I've just, I've just written a book about cultural management, which is coming out probably this year. Um, it's one of those very short books. I'm a big fan of the short book, actually, Dave. I like I like short books, both as a, a writer and a reader. Um, so there's that. 
Um, with, but that, in a way, again, is a bit of a throwback to things that I was writing about kind of 15 years ago about about management of, of organisations and creative organisations. Um, I'm I'm working with colleagues at Warwick, um, Dave Wright, and and international colleagues Border Klepp and Mika Pickenen on looking at creative work. And this was a this was a thing that I know that you've done a lot of work on. Um, but we're kind of we're, we're interested in um, particularly in the relationship between productive and unproductive time and and how how the sort of unproductive wasted time is the is often the very important part of a creative process and it's the one bit that you never get paid for and and what happened during lockdown is that that mismatch became really exposed and you had you had you had people who could no longer afford to indulge engaging in that in that creative process and and left the profession and so you've got this you know there's a crisis now of people leaving the profession and also as i think your research has proved you know that very very hard for people to get into the creative industries who don't have access to privileged access to sources of funding and sources of time that allow them that creative scope so so thinking about creative work from that point of view and trying to think about how could you make things fairer, better, um, would be important. I think the other side of where I'm seeing my own work going is I'm, I'm very driven by the stuff that I'm teaching to my students and things that I think will be useful to them. And so it's I think that's why I like short books as well. And um, things that, you know, certainly with a book like Creativity is where you can lift bits of it out and and use it in a teaching context you know there's there's a there's a session here if you want it about about motivation or theory and creativity there's a section here about definitions of creativity and what does creativity mean and and so you know try having trying to find that connection between things that you're you're going to be teaching and that students are going to find useful and things that inspire you and that drive you for that's probably where my why comes from i guess